there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guests are Esmeralda Negron and Susie Petricelli of Atta Football. We've had some great guests lately, including Christine Cupo, Andy Harper, and Janine Becky. So check those out. But first, let's talk some soccer with my friend Chris Whittingham, who you can hear on Univision, Inter-Miami Radio, The Dan Lebitard Show, and the Chelsea Miked Up Podcast. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you? Doing all right, sir. How are you? Late night recording following a U.S. game? It is 11.07 p.m. Eastern on (laughs) Sunday night. The U.S. has just beaten Haiti 1-0, early goal from Sam Vines. Kind of a grim performance, though. Yeah. Yeah, I mean uh, it was it, it was not the it was not the best of performances from the U.S. and I was it was actually kind of in not a usual way, which is normally they're very kind of insipid in the attack and they don't put numbers forward and they're being careful and and not really fully committing themselves into a first group game. But it was actually kind of the opposite, which was I thought the United States was incredibly stretched in this game, and in yeah. some ways the U.S. is kind of playing under a tactical model that I think is probably a little bit outdated now where both fullbacks get forward and both central midfielders get forward out of a 4-3-3 and there are times with these massive spaces in the middle and on either side of the two center backs and that's a lot for Jackson Ewell, Miles Robinson and Walker Zimmerman to cover so for me it was just kind of positionally the game was wild and look Haiti took advantage and and tried to strike on the counter of a couple of occasions but it, it wasn't kind of a usually weird U.S. performance. It was kind of in a different way, in a more burhaltery way. Uh, and I guess it makes for a more entertaining game, but in the end, not really the most convincing U.S. performance. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I mean, Haiti's not a bad team. This team made the semifinals of the Gold Cup last time. They've got some decent players. They've, their country's been going through a very difficult week with their president being assassinated, so so much stuff going on there. Uh, covid positives as well for some of their their better players I think a better team might have taken advantage of the U.S. uh, more in this situation now the U.S. gets three points it's the Gold Cup it's the opening game Mexico can't say they got three points last night because they only got one against Trinidad so um, it is what it is and it's it's actually not the easiest group because Canada awaits for the U.S. Martinique which you know, should be an easier opponent than uh, than Haiti was. Um, but you want to see something from these U.S. guys. And for me, and by the way, we're going to get to the Euro and, and the Copa America final here as well, listeners. So there's a lot to talk about here. But we did want to start by addressing the U.S. game uh, right afterward. Uh, I thought Buzio actually was pretty good coming on in this game. So if you're looking for someone who stood out in a positive way, I kind of like to see him get more time later on in this tournament. And I think Gianluca Busio is the player that Greg Berhalter wishes Jackson Ewell was, right? Yep. And Jackson Ewell can be that on rare occasion, but I just think this level is a step up for him that I, I just don't think he's an international caliber player. And certainly for San Jose, he's put in some decent performances, but look, it's a San Jose team that struggles and you know it's a different model that they have. But when Gianluca Busio came on, in particular, those last five minutes as they're trying to kill the game, they have a two and a half minute passing sequence that kind of runs through him. He's running the game completely. And I think Greg Berhalter thinks that Jackson Ewell can run the game, but Gianluca Busio took it to a complete another level, backwards, forward, sideways, just moving the game kind of at his discretion and help kill it off. And 
just on the overall, right? You're, you're talking about wanting to see more of Jackson Ewell. I just think more generally, I want to see players that have a future with the U.S. national right. team. It's why there's a little bit of a kind of surprise. Now, there, like, for example, Julian Araujo didn't want to commit to a national team, so he didn't pick either Mexico or the U.S., kicks that can down the road because this is a competitive tournament. But, for example, Kate Cowell wanted to see him at this tournament. I, I, in some ways, I think this should have been the under-23s or youth tournament that the Olympics would have been. I think players like Miles Robinson and Walker Zimmerman had more of a future. Sam Vines has more of a future, even if he didn't play particularly well today, I didn't think. But either way, I want to see Daryl DK start. I want to see Joe Keeney start. I want to see Gianluca Busio start. I want to see Eric Williamson start. I thought Kellen Acosta had a really good performance and certainly uh, has gotten call-ins, and I think he's played reasonably well with the full national team. But I, I just think on a more general basis, I think this should be about bleeding in younger players that have a future with the national team and not giving it to veterans who have kind of seen what the ceiling is when they're involved. I was a little surprised Daryl DK didn't start. He comes on in this game. There was some sort of at least indication from the guys announcing the game that maybe he had an injury issue, but that hadn't come up at all during his uh, his play for Orlando recently. I, I, I know he had a little bit of an issue as he was coming off um, one of the games recently, but DK comes on, has a little bit of time. Eric Williamson comes on, has a little bit of time. Buzio comes on, has a little bit of time. There are a lot of guys who came on in this game that I wanted to see more of and prefer actually to see starting. I know you have to get points, but these are this is kind of your B team. Like you, I'd rather see these guys getting more time on the field in place of some people who I don't think have very big ceilings. And also could potentially get in the shop window and earn bigger moves to Europe, right? And that was one of the ideas for Reggie Cannon, who, who had a hamstring injury. I thought Shaq Moore did well getting forward, but both he and Sam Vines were asked to get forward to such a degree that I thought they left fairly massive holes. Sam Vines being out of position leads to probably Haiti's best chance of the match, with Derek, which Derek Etienne slammed into the side netting. So... You know, from a positional standpoint, probably not the best game for those fullbacks, although, you know, in some ways it's their instructions. But either way, you know, this is an opportunity for players like Gianluca Busio, who has been, you know, linked with a move to a recently promoted team in Italy, uh, Venezia. I'd certainly be curious to see if maybe he can earn a better move than that. Not to say that that club isn't going to go places. They certainly seem to be going for Americans. But um, I, I am interested in, you know, what these guys can do to their transfer value. And being in full national teams really helps transfer value. So, you know, getting those young players a chance to be in the shop window is really important as well. Anything else you want to talk about with the U.S. after this first game? Not particularly. I mean, you know, I'll be curious to see what it looks like when they play Canada. Both teams might be qualified for the knockout stage by then. But uh, and now Alfonso Davies picked up a knock as well in in their first uh, group game was, as well. But uh, you know, not not exactly a sterling performance. But we've seen the U.S. start Gold Cups like this before. And ultimately, in my view, this is a player development tournament more than it is a tournament that they're out to win. Despite the fact, look, I mean, Mexico is not exactly in their best moment at the moment. You've just beaten them in the Nations League, and they struggled uh, to score a goal against Trinidad and Tobago. So um, I, I think you know the U.S. have a chance to progress in this tournament, but uh, it's going to need to be better than it was tonight. Yeah, Alfonso Davies is actually out of the tournament with that injury for mm. for Canada. So. Bit of a bummer. I, I, I'm still annoyed that this tournament's taking place in July because it's it's a bad time of, of the calendar to be having this tournament for any player who in Europe his whose club team is starting preseason right now. That's why the top U.S. players aren't involved. Um, you know, Davies is probably better off to be honest personally, not being involved in this tournament and recovering and getting back to uh, Bayern Munich. 
Um, you know, it's unfortunate that Chucky Lozano is going to be out of the tournament now with the injury that he suffered in the first game. So, um, you know, like I, I wish the Gold Cup were every four years, not every two years. I wish it were in June once every four years. Uh, obviously, two other very big tournaments, bigger tournaments, the Euro and the Copa America just ended this weekend. Both really exciting finals. Um, and, and I want to start with Sunday's final in the Euro in London. Uh, Italy wins on penalties against England. Uh, England scores in the second minute. Italy equalizes in the second half. I felt like if it went to penalties that Italy would probably prevail. They did. Um, three misses for England. Uh Young players, Saka, Rashford, Sancho, most of whom came on late in this game, very late, essentially just to take penalties. Some criticism for Gareth Southgate on that. I always feel like if you're going to bring in someone to take penalties, you should at least give them time to acclimate to the game. So maybe like in between the first part of extra time and the second part, not with just two minutes left in the game. Yeah, and I heard Gareth Southgate's explanation after the game, and it was basically that he couldn't put on Rashford and Sancho uh, for Henderson, and I forget who else came off, and basically not have a formation in which you have six forwards on the field, right? So it would have been difficult to maintain a balance, um, but I think those subs being unable to convert those penalties is kind of... In some ways, Gareth Southgate's work gone awry because he has put so much effort. I mean, I remember in 2018 at, at the World Cup how much discussion there was after they beat Colombia on penalties about Gareth Southgate has put a lot of effort into overturning the mentality when it came to England on penalties. They, so, they have such a terrible record in penalty shootouts that he dedicated a lot of work to it. And clearly came into this game with a kind of penalty shootout base strategy in some ways, right? And you know, picked Bukayo Saka to go fifth and put Sancho and Rashford on so that they could take penalties. And the fact that those young guys now all of a sudden have the same old England attached to them so early in their careers, he's got a job on now. And now there's question. I saw Andres Cantor, a friend of the show, say, is Gareth Southgate the guy to take England into a next generation because they have so much attacking talent and we didn't really see it on display. I thought in some ways... You know, the the more questionable decision from Southgate was not the penalties because, look, it's a lottery, right? Like, you know, J- Jordan Pickford made two really good saves, but Donnarumma made three. And so, for some, in some ways, it wasn't necessarily about the, the, the penalty tactics. It was about what happened after they scored in the second minute, which is that they didn't really put their foot on the pedal right. and try and really get, get Italy out of the game. And in general, the conversation around Southgate has always been, is he too conservative? Is he too concerned about negating the other team's strengths as opposed to accentuating his own team's abilities, opportunities, and, and, and what they can do going forward? They have so much attacking talent, and yet Jack Grealish doesn't come on until extra time. Jaden Sancho, Marcus Rashford only come on after the game is basically guaranteed to go to penalties. You have all this attacking talent, and yet they don't play free-flowing football. They only conceded one goal, and in some ways the goal in this game was kind of a fluke, but I, I, I still think that there's real questions about how conservative he's been as the England manager. Yeah, and, and I think I've brought this up before. I compare this to Didier Deschamps winning the 2018 World Cup with France, but playing very conservatively with uh, a tremendously talented group that he had and being rewarded for it in a way that France was not rewarded this time for it. And I think Southgate's kind of similar, and it, it is frustrating. Like I, I get why you have to have balance. I get why... 
not conceding goals is tremendously important in tournament play, but um, I feel like England might have won this game or had at least a better chance to win this game, especially after scoring in the second minute, if they would have kept their foot in the gas. And they didn't do that. And, and that, to me, is frustrating. And I would even go so far as, I don't know if I want... I'll, I'll at least ask the question, England is at home in the final. They played six out of seven games at home in this tournament. They go up in the second minute. They don't win. There's a little bit of a choke here, I think. And and, and yeah, I, that's a little bit of a talk radio topic. Did they choke or not? But like, <laughs> like this was this is a this is a huge screw up, I think. And and like, like for me at least, I don't know if England's like if, if Southgate and England are getting enough criticism for not pulling this off. They should have done it. They didn't do it. I will say, I think that the only like counterbalance that, and I think on the overall, Southgate has done a really good job with England. Like we now hold them to a standard that is entirely Southgate based, right? Because, I mean, England have never lived up to their potential at major tournaments. They've never figured out a way to win games. They always try and cram every superstar that they have so they can get Lampard and Scholes and Gerrard and Rooney and all these guys into the same team. And then the balance was off. So in some ways, he did it. He has achieved the balance. He's gotten them to a World Cup semifinal and a European final. I think that should be commended. But I do understand what you're saying, which is that ultimately this England team can deliver so much more going forward. I even remember under Southgate, they played a game in the Nations League away at Spain. I think it finished 3-2, and it was a brilliant game that England played going forward. They attacked well. They created chances. I was like, I would love to see England play like this all the time, but clearly it kind of makes Southgate a little uneasy, and he prefers to win games in this style. The question is, is he holding them back? I think he is, but I also think in international management, like who are you bringing in that is really going to implement that style? Like Roberto Martinez has done that with Belgium, but you can't really say that on a results basis he deserves to have a major national team job more than Gareth Southgate does. Um, so I also think that's a very England-centric view of the game, I think, to talk about the Italians now, they were the best team at the tournament. And they also can control games, not because the other team isn't attempting to control games, but because they have the talent and the tactical setup to do so. This is a team that hasn't lost in more than 30 games. And so they have a remarkable system, and I think... At a certain point, their players came to the fore. I thought Chiesa had a very good game until he got hurt. And I thought the change to basically playing without a striker really allowed Italy to open up the game a little bit because I don't think Belotti or Immobile is really enough at international level, even down to Belotti missing the penalty. So I really like them playing with almost a false nine and just kind of Berardi, Chiesa, and Insigne running around and... I think in the end, Mancini's changes really helped turn the game around because I also thought they probably deserve criticism for how listless they were in the first half. Right. And look, I think Chiesa was actually the best attacking player on the field in this yeah. game. Uh, and maybe, like, you know, maybe not totally Italy's best player if we're actually saying that, like, their central defense was fantastic in this, in this tournament. They were very good again today. Um, and... Look, this was not the same Italy team in the last two games of the tournament against Spain and against England, and yet they still found a way to get to penalties and to win. Uh, and so you do give credit for that. I'm still not 100% certain how good this Italy team is. Uh, and, and this gets into a little bit of of what's tough for me when it, to talk, and I'll be honest here, just about how good is a national team. Because... 
one-off situations are one-off situations. That's tournament soccer, right? Do I think Switzerland is a better team than France? No, but Switzerland beat France in this tournament. If you ask me who the best team was in this tournament, the Euros, I would probably say Italy. Um, but that said, like in, in, we'll talk Copa America in a second. I don't think Argentina is a better team than Brazil. I think if they played no. 10 times, Brazil would win more than half. And, and so that's where it gets interesting with soccer because in one-off tournament soccer, um, like this sport more than other sports, the team that's not the better team wins. It just happens. And, and so you have to sort of deal with that in, in how you analyze stuff. But like when you look at, at, at Italy, what they've done under Roberto Mancini, it's pretty impressive at this point. Yeah. Like there's a, there's a real body of work. There's a real identity to this team. And here we have a situation different from usual Euros where it's not that long before the next World Cup. It's next year. Yeah. And we're, we're going to see less turnover with coaches. We're going to see most of these coaches back for the World Cup next year. I expect to see Mancini or, 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 uh, you know, coaching Italy at the World Cup. And I think we'll be able to base sort of predictions and how we look going at the World Cup going into it a bit more on tournaments that have happened more recently, whether it's the Euro or the Copa America or even the Gold Cup. Um, and in, that's, that's an interesting you know, thing to, to have for us to, to look at it. And the narrative arc of Italy being able to finish off such a turnaround from missing out on the World Cup. Like, I think that's kind of probably, in some ways, the most undertold story, at least in the, you know, press that I heard ahead of the game, which was, I mean, Italy were in dire straits. I remember in that last game where they failed to qualify, like, they took forever to put Jorginho on, and then he came on and changed the game. But, like, the way that they built the team around that three-man midfield, which has been brilliant, in some ways, uh, you know, maybe a last hurrah for Chiellini and Bonucci, but it could still carry on all the way into the World Cup, I guess. In some ways, they have to find more classically Italian defenders because at the moment, the conveyor belt has stopped producing those. But either way, like their, their turnaround is remarkable. And now they head into the World Cup as one of the favorites. They haven't lost in forever. And they've managed to figure out a style of play that is progressive and attacking and can work at the international level because it's not too risky. It doesn't leave yourself exposed in one-off games. And as, as you mentioned, I think that it's a perfect point because you know France probably was the best team on paper heading into the World Cup in 2018 and won. But the Italians, despite good form, were not considered to be the team with the most talent. I, I you know heard a conversation: Do do, do the Italians have world-class players? And I don't know, I, th I still think that's kind of, you know, up for debate. I mean, I guess, you know, Chiellini and Bonucci once were. I don't know if they still are. Donnarumma, I think, is probably a world-class goalkeeper. Jorginho has kind of that regista role, but he comes under a lot of criticism in the Premier League. So I, I, I don't know if they have, you know, a mid, like, you know, by far the best talent in an international tournament. And if this were like a kind of round-robin domestic league, uh, if Italy were to win it, it probably would be, you know, the French who would win it. It would be, you know, like the, maybe the Belgians would be better. But either way, in this setting, I thought the Italians over the course of the seven games you have to play were the best team. They, they put in the best performances and probably just about deserve to win it on, on this day. Yeah. Italy's the hardest team for me to ever predict tournaments because they are capable essentially of winning every tournament they're in. Or as we've seen, they can flame out spectacularly and not get out of the group stage. So I think of this Italy team that won this Euro, but I also think of uh, other performances where they 
either won the tournament, a, a major tournament, or came close to. It's like 2006 World Cup, they won. 2012 Euros, they got to the final. Um, uh, like, stuff like that where, like, they, mm-hmm. like, are capable of, of, of winning the thing or going very deep. And then there's these other times and i can't tell the difference heading into a tournament sometimes like between these italy teams so like 2010 world cup italy team doesn't get out of the group stage 2014 world cup italy doesn't get out of the group stage um and it, it, it just it's you know don't qualify for 2018 but like it's it's really hard for me to know when italy's actually going to be good or not in a tournament. yeah i mean they they finished the bottom of a group in south africa with, that had paraguay slovakia and new zealand in it and they finished bottom yeah. of that group so uh, yeah you're right you, you can't really tell the one thing that you might think is replicable is you know a lot of people talk about the improvement of the setup uh, that the Roberto Mancini has, has brought in, both in terms of the personalities, the quality of the backroom staff, uh, and just kind of that feeling. You saw just how much they galvanized around uh, Leonardo Spinazzola and the way that, uh, you know, kind of his injury impacted things and how happy they were, how much they kind of enjoyed post match uh, saying it's coming to Rome rather than it's coming home. So it, it does seem like the, the, the feeling around the team is different. And so I think he's definitely improved that setup. And it seems as though that this can be a replicable formula. But as you've said, you don't really know until you see them head to a major tournament and we'll see what it's like in Qatar in about 17 months' time. Exactly. So let's talk Copa America. Lionel Messi wins his first senior trophy. First time Argentina's won a major trophy at the senior level since 1993. In an upset. I mean, like, I, I, my fear, and I, I'll put it out there right now, Argentina's my adopted country. I love Argentina. I was absolutely thrilled to watch Argentina win the Copa America. I thought heading into this game they might get smacked three to one, four to four nil by by Brazil, which is had not lost a competitive game since the twenty eighteen World Cup against Belgium and has basically just been running roughshod through World Cup qualifying in South America. Um, and yet confounding my expectations and those of many, Argentina gets a goal from Angel Di Maria who in my Freddie Adu series, Freddie said he was better than Angel Di Maria at Benfica. Uh, <laughs> just think about that for a second. Um, and, you know, like against the run of play, if we're being honest, and and Argentina finds a way to hold on and, and wins in the Maracanã against Brazil and Neymar, arch rivals, trophy on the line, and... It was a weird game, not a great game, but a very physical game. Um, you know, Neymar had a huge chunk of his shorts taken out like 10 minutes into this game. I don't even know how that <laughs> happened. Uh, probably should have been more cards. And, and yet, even though it wasn't a great game, I was personally so happy for Lionel Messi at the end of this just to be have a, a giant smile on his face and be thrown up in the air by his teammates and lift the trophy and it's not the same thing, obviously, as the World Cup, but it, it seemed like a big thing. I mean, it's still a first major trophy for Argentina since 1993, right? So it's a massive achievement for him. You certainly would have preferred to see it with fans in the stadium. It just didn't. It just doesn't feel the same when it's an empty Maracanã as opposed to would have been a full, you know, Argentina and Colombia that were due to be the hosts of this one. So. It would have been much better to see a full stadium, but either way, I, I, you know, this 
achievement for him is something that has been so prolonged. It's so deserving as well, him being an international champion. The fact that he's finally able to do it, you would have loved to have seen them score that chance at the end and yeah. thank God that, that, that it didn't come back to bite him because if you know it's 1-1 and it goes to extra time or penalties and Argentina lose, that's the thing that gets remembered. It's like the Higuain miss in 2014. Right. It's like you know missed penalties that have come before it. So Argentina have gotten to so many finals with Messi and not been able to win. They've been so dysfunctional with you know in the Messi era. It's not entirely his fault, but it's been an extremely dysfunctional setup. And the fact that Lionel Scaloni, definitely not a manager that anyone would have thought would lead Argentina to glory, a group of players that is not the golden generation, or at least it kind of Scaloni didn't try and pick every single one of them. But either way, the fact that he's got this achievement now is something that you know you can you know tack on to his his career. He's now level with Cristiano Ronaldo on international trophies, right? At least at a major senior level. So it's a massive achievement for him to finally have this one checked off. It is, and for any listeners who don't know the name Rodrigo de Paul, I think. Yeah. Keep an eye on him because he had the pass over the top to Di Maria that set up the goal for Argentina. And he is moving up in the world very, very quickly. Um, and well uh, done cl- to Atletico Madrid, by the way, because they got that business right. done before the Copa America. I imagine that transfer fee would have 10 or 15 million more euros if, if it had been done after. Yeah. Now, he, he's terrific. And, and you're starting to see some younger Argentine players who are are good enough to play with Messi and give them chances to win tournaments. You know, whether it's Rodrigo de Paul, whether it's Lautaro Martinez, um, you know, these guys, they're good. And for so long I've gotten so frustrated with the the lack of quality in, in Messi's support group with Argentina. And sometimes it's been injuries over the years, like Kun Aguero just hasn't done much with the Argentine national team. He was with this team, didn't play very much, but he's also on the downside of his career. Uh, but like guys like Emmy Martinez, just tremendous performance. Do you know how hard it was for Emmy Martinez to get the starting position for Argentina? Like even last fall during World Cup qualifiers, he wasn't starting. And I was just like, why are you still playing Franco Armani? From River Plate. Augustine Marchesine. Right. And and you have a guy who's a Premier League starter with Aston Villa who's a terrific goalkeeper. And finally, Scaloni starts him. And you know what? He's really good. He won them that penalty shootout with one of the great smack-talking performances of all time <laughs> against Colombia. And he he's just a presence in goal. And in... Just a really good story. Like I want to get him on the podcast because he speaks English too, and and, mm-hmm. um, and and just to see this Argentina team outperform expectations. When was the last time you said that about the Argentine national team? It, not not in my lifetime, that's for certain. And so the fact that they have have managed to pull this off is kind of a tribute to the overall setup improving slightly around Messi. Look, I, I still look at kind of the names on that. We talked about earlier about the names on the sheet when it came to the Euros. The names on the sheet for Argentina is not really as impressive, even as it has been during the last decade of struggles for them losing in finals. The players who start at fullback, the players who start in the opposite wing of Di Maria. It's like, this isn't 
really that impressive. And yet, in some ways, it's more functional, right? I, we talked about this earlier on in the tournament, right? You know, maybe it's a team that could do better to, to, to build around Messi, but it also allowed Messi to have some really brilliant moments at times during this tournament. He had a couple of massive misses in the knockout round, including in the final. But I think beyond that, he played pretty well. He created good chances. He picked, you know, an incredible defense-splitting ball in the quarterfinal to lead to the opening goal for, for the aforementioned DePaul. So he, he's put in decent performances. The, the one area I, I do want to kind of mention the losers in this one, Brazil, I, I've, I've kind of been surprised, you know, the, the one hole in the team that felt fair, fairly glaring was that they didn't convert many chances, and a lot of that came down to the performance of Richarlison. And I feel like he's probably a player who will come under a lot of scrutiny from the Brazilian media and, you know, and also Chichi's you know, insistence on picking him to be in that forward line. Being a forward for Brazil is a massive deal. And I just don't think he, you know, he got into very good positions, but his finishing touch of this tournament was off. It was off the entire tournament. And I think it kind of came back to the bite him because, you know, probably the best chance of the match for Brazil to score came to his feet. And he just kind of smashed it into Amy Martinez, who, who made a good save. But I just think generally... You know, Brazil probably needs a better compliment to Neymar than Richarlison. It's frustrating for me because, you know, Roberto Firmino didn't start this game. He comes on mm-hmm. as a sub. Um, you know, Fabinho's on the bench. Vinicius Jr. is like a sub. Like, and I get it. If you're stacked, and we saw this with some European teams too in the Euros, like if you're stacked, you can't start everybody. But like Fred, Fred starts for these guys. And yeah. and it's just, I, I don't totally get it. it. It seems like guys are valued more by some national teams than you and I would value them based on their club play when we see them every week. And it makes me wonder, like, what's going on there? For me, I, it is kind of national team managers trying to pick a team that makes sense rather than just pick your most talented players. And, you know, maybe... Casemiro and Fabinho doesn't work as a two, right, in, in central midfield. And you'd rather have Fred, who's maybe a bit more of a progressive player than Fabinho is. But still, Fabinho's a better player, like just out and out, better player. Uh, the Firmino one is a little bit more up for debate because I don't think he had a very good season with Liverpool, despite all the things that he right. adds. Like, you wonder if you can unlock everything around him just because of, you know, what a quality distributor or presser he is. Um, but that one is slightly up for debate. But look, you know, Philippe Coutinho was not kicked on in his career at Barcelona or his various loans that he's had since he's left Liverpool. So he's kind of out of that fold. And, you know, Brazil is always producing big money attackers that go abroad. You know, the, you know one of them has got a hit now. And, you know, Richarlison was once one of them. You got a huge move to Everton. A lot of people at the time thought, whoa, are they paying way too much for a player who's done well at Watford, but who knows if he's this good of a player? And I don't I think kind of Everton is probably his ceiling. I don't I don't know if a big six Premier League club or, you know, a big Champions League club is gonna come in for Richarlison because this is kind of his ceiling. You know, good movement can can be a good attacker at times, but probably isn't good enough you know, in terms of finishing chances to really be that top, top level attacker. It is kind of funny because every once in a while you see Jurgen Klopp make some kind of snide comments about the Brazilian national team. And think about this. How many Liverpool players have sort of gotten the short end of the stick under Chiche? Allison gets benched during this yeah. tournament for Aderson. Fabinho doesn't start. Firmino doesn't start. And if you're Jurgen Klopp, I can kind of understand why you're a little snide about all this. Well, he also might enjoy the fact that they're not playing so much during the <laughs> offseason. But yeah, I mean, it does seem a campaign against Liverpool in the Brazil camp. And by the way, we're going to play Richarlison. We're going to start him, Everton man. So, uh, 
Uh, good stuff. Uh, Chris, as always, a total pleasure. So much going on in the soccer world. Great to talk about it with you. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Esmeralda Negron and Susie Petricelli. We have two guests on this new episode. Esmeralda Negron is a former Princeton star soccer player who's now a co-founder and general manager of Atta Football, a new company that helps broadcast women's soccer from around the world. Also here is Susie Petricelli. She's the author of the terrific memoir, Raised a Warrior, a memoir of soccer, grit, and leveling the playing field about her path to playing soccer at Harvard and everything that went into it. She's also a digital project manager at Atta Football as well. Great to see both of you. Thanks for coming on the show. Awesome. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Grant. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Uh, lots to talk about here. I've got plenty of questions for both of you, but I'll start with S. Uh, I am a consumer of Atta Football and love what you guys have done over the last year to bring women's soccer onto televisions in the U.S. What exactly is Atta Football and how did it get started? Yeah, well, it's awesome to hear that you're a fan and you, you consume the matches. Very excited to hear that. Um, yeah, so I think for us, uh, we launched Asa Football just to fill this void. Um, I think there was phenomenal matches over in Europe. You had some of the biggest you know, brands and clubs in the world investing on the women's side. In 2019, you had all these record crowds. Um, I always bring this one as an example or, or, or point this out. You had um, Atletico Barca at the Wanda in front of 60,000 plus fans and like, someone in the US or in other places around the world couldn't access that and I felt like that was that was a, a frustrating um, thing I think to kind of like realize you know I'm a, a former women's player I'm a fan and I wanted to access this and I couldn't and so you know myself and my co-founder Hannah Brown launched this company to really fix that um, and so we've invested in, in rights uh, internationally to some of the top leagues in the world. We've partnered with premium broadcasters to ensure that these matches are on premium broadcasts for the first time. So a lot of people saw the FAWSL on NBC. Uh, we had the French League, the D1F on ESPN. Um, and so we were, we were super excited to do that. And then in, in addition, we've we've launched this digital hub in this community, AsaFootball.com, where fans can access this, you know, all in one place. There's highlights, there's the live matches, on-demand matches, there's additional premium content coming. We've got podcast partnerships with other, um, you know, organizations and companies that are investing in bringing greater visibility to female soccer players. So, um, and we have a lot coming soon next season um, to really just kind of unite this community make it easy for fans to access this. Um, and we're so, so excited about how it's gone so, thus far. Yeah, it, it's great. I, for me, I watch a lot of soccer on TV and this is for the first time now over the last year or so, I've finally been able to to watch big women's club games from Europe uh, on my television in the US. And, and it's just really cool that you guys are, are doing this. Um, for Susie, before we get to how you joined Atta Football, I do want to ask about your book. Uh, it's <laughs> called Raised a Warrior, which I mentioned earlier. I've read it. It's terrific. And could you explain to our listeners what the book is about and why you decided to write it? Yeah, I would love to. Thank you. Um, so, you know, basically, I was that little girl, that little soccer player, um, you know, you know, 40 years ago, 35 years ago that wanted to see my sport on TV. Right. I was that girl. 
Um, and, you know, the story is about um, my life as a girl who, who just happens to be a soccer player, really. Um, and it's about how I rode the wave of soccer, luckily. Um, I actually grew up in a football family. My dad and my grandfather both played uh, high school and college football. I thought I was going to be a football player when I was, you know, three, four, five years old. Um, and But of course, that wasn't offered to me. Um, I was lucky, and now I know how lucky I was, that um, soccer was just, AYSO was just starting to let girls play in my town. Um, so, you know, I just was lucky. I, you know, was born at, at the time when soccer was being offered to girls. And I rode that soccer wave all the way uh, to college, um, like as, you know, loving the youth soccer system here in the U.S., um, had this amazing opportunity to play at Harvard. Um, and the book really came from, uh, you know, all of my teammates really throughout my life because they were just the coolest girls I'd ever met. And but really also just this nugget of of the experience of getting to play at an Ivy League school. Um, as and I talk about it all the time, you know, being a part of an Ivy League program is really a special thing. And, um, you know, the book started as just uh, like a fun college story, really, like the original story going back 25 years was, you know, like us as a team, um, you know, parties, streaking, you know, it was an Ivy League girls soccer team. I was like, who wouldn't want to hear that story, you know? Um, But it turned (laughs) out it was it was hard, you know, it was hard to get a women's sports story published. Um, So, you know, it's it's been a little bit, I'll say a lot more of a of a. of a struggle than I thought it would be. But here, you know, here we are today. And through the book, I actually got, you know, connected to S. So everything's come full circle in a really cool way. It's really neat. I don't know if any of the three of us are what someone might stereotypically think would be like Ivy League people. Because like we all went to Ivy League schools (laughs) and yet uh, I don't think any of us grew up in those types of situations where that was ever expected. No. Uh, But like you say, here we are. Um, And I'm wondering... Ask like what is what was sort of your experience with soccer um, growing up that that sort of you know took you to Princeton eventually and then put you into the the soccer business space. Yeah, it's funny because I read Susie's book; it's phenomenal. So I encourage everybody to read it. It was really really so great and it was so relatable to me as like I didn't realize that Harvard and Princeton had, a, had so many like similar type of traditions as well. Um, but yeah, it's funny. I just grew up. I, I grew up in northern New Jersey in Bergen County. I my parents didn't play the game. We just kind of like you know my parents are, are Puerto Rican, and so for them like you know sports are like biggest sports are baseball. So um, but but grew up in Bergen County and it was a big thing. So they like signed me up for rec, and I just started. I fell in love with the game instantaneously. It's funny. I still remember the first time. Uh, that I went on a soccer field. I remember the first time I scored a goal and I was like five years old, you know, there's a lot of other memories that I, you know, I can't, you know, tap into, but those, um, you know, obviously I can still access and, and they were, I think, you know, they, they, they obviously were telling, telling me what I think, what my journey would ultimately be, but I played the game just out of sheer love and, and passion. Um, you know, I, I went through high school. I didn't even realize that I had an opportunity to play in college um, until really late. I committed my senior year, like in February, which is like now, you know, you hear about all these stories. Um, so it was never, I think, I think I grew up in a time similar to almost Susie, where it was, it was like, you just played for love of the game. You didn't realize there were barriers. You didn't realize there were all these opportunities. You're just playing because you loved it. And all of a sudden, all these opportunities ultimately opened up for you as a result. Um, 
you know, and so it was, a, you know, my senior year, I was, I was recruited. I, I, I ended up committing to Princeton in like February of my senior year, went to Princeton um, really because it was a phenomenal school and they were an up and coming program. And I thought I could access kind of the best of both worlds. Um, I didn't know if I'd play that much. And then all of a sudden, you know, I was an All-American. We went to the Final Four. I was with the USU 21 national team. Uh, but I remember I spent my summers, and I think this is such a big part of why, you know, I ultimately achieved those things was because I spent my summers at world-class soccer camp with uh, Kazbek Tambi and the likes of Manny Shellscheidt and all these old former, like, Cosmo players that I used to play pickup with, like, in high school and college um, in post, and I didn't realize actually how lucky I was to have that because, you know, they played for the Cosmos in the late 70s, early 80s, and I was born after that. Um, so I didn't realize I was playing with some of the best players in the world, like on a regular basis, and how unique and special that was. But it was in those environments that I fell in love with the game and these pickup environments. Um, I saw and I was able to witness like kind of the intricacies of the game um, that I don't think a lot of other people were able to, um, you know, through their youth development. So um, that was kind of like, you know, what took me and I think graduating college, I wanted to be a pro soccer player. WUSA had folded, so I really had no options. Uh, I went to Europe. I was probably one of the first uh, U.S. players to go to Europe and play, quote unquote, professionally. Although if you can, can if you can think about 15 years ago, the conditions weren't so great. Um, I have loads of stories about that experience. Um, but then kind of fell into college coaching. It was like, you know, my love for the game stayed with me always. And I think it's why I'm where I am now. But I think I'm constantly trying to replicate that feeling that I had on the field. And, you know, coaching, I got into it because I thought it was a way to stay connected with the game. But it really wasn't for me in the long run. Uh, wanted to get involved more in the business. I got, got connected to the folks at Relevant Sports Group and, and Charlie Stilitano being an, an also Princeton graduate. Um, and then that kind of introduced me to the business side of the sport. And I think it was kind of all of my experiences as a player, as a youth player, as a college player, as a, a, a player that so desired to be a professional player, but the conditions weren't there. I think about my journey through the game and all of them have kind of been you know, have culminated in launching Atta Football. So uh, in short, <laughs> that was long, uh, the game has definitely, um, you know, I think all of my experiences thus far throughout the game have really been the inspiration behind Atta Football. By the way, there's no such thing. We don't want like <laughs> tiny sound bites here. So that's totally fine. It's uh, one thing I, I love about hosting this podcast. We aren't, you know, confined to two minutes. We got, we got more time than that here. So don't worry. Um, this is all very interesting to me because like, I'm sort of fascinated by how the United States as soccer has grown here, has gone from being one of the worst world, worst countries in the world in which to watch soccer, professional soccer on television to being one of the best. Uh, that has certainly been the case for men's professional soccer. Women's professional soccer, you now are, are having this huge influence on. And I also feel it's about, it will have an impact on the country getting better at playing soccer. Because if you can watch the best professional soccer in the world on your television, I think kids who t might quit soccer when they're 13 or 14 years old might stick with it even more. I think that's actually what is happening to a large extent. Susie, I, I'd be curious to know sort of how you got connected to Atta Football and 
and what you think about what I was just talking about. Yeah. Um, so first of all, I just want to say that my soccer career was not as glorious as, as is by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I, um, I got connected to Ez because, um, I think, uh, you got, you know, you both know that I'm also producing a documentary about, uh, women's soccer with Kelly Nascimento and Julie Foudy. Um, so, uh, Kelly and I took the, the film to relevant, um, sports, a couple years back um, to show it to them and see if there might be some kind of partnership opportunity. Um, and they pulled in um, Ez to the meeting. And um, so Ez sat in the back of the meeting and um, she was listening to the story and she watched the sizzle. Um, and the whole time I was like, who is Ez? Who is Ez? <laughs> um, and she, you know, she just sat and observed and she was very serious about the soccer. Um, and then, you know, we had a brief, um, you know, like conversation and we were, ta- were talking about, you know, this, the teams that were in the film. And then at the end she goes, well, you guys have to go to Olympic Lyonnais. And then she kind of walked out the room and we were like, <laughs> we love her. <laughs> like, who is she? So that was, our, that was my first uh, meeting with Ez. And I just always like had this crazy respect for her as someone who just was, you know, properly serious about the women's game um and it's hard to find those people sometimes right so um i just always had this affection for her just from that first meeting and then you know we're still working on the film i was you know finally this book is coming out and i saw that ez had started um at atlanta media and at football and i have a tech background um and so you know i just reached out to her and we had a conversation and she's like well actually i need somebody to help me with the tech side um and i was like this, this could be amazing. This could be perfect timing for me. Because in the, my book, I talk about, you know, the need to, to the, as a little girl, to want to see this, you know, fo- uh, soccer on TV. Um, and then I just happened to have some tech background. So it was just like a really cool, like, fit for us. That No, it's really cool. I, yeah. I, you know, I'm going to get Kelly Nascimento on this podcast at some point before long. Uh, she happens to be Pele's daughter, uh, in addition <laughs> to a filmmaker who lives in New York City and... Uh, the the preview I've seen for the documentary is really cool, by the way. So thank uh, you. Yeah, uh, look forward to to having her on the show too. Um, as I'm I'm curious to know from your perspective, how have you gone about sort of the logistics and you know getting this business out to football off the ground, and and how how the business model actually works. Um, yeah, so it was, um, it was crazy how it kind of came about. Um, Hannah and myself, uh, who's the co-founder of Atsa Football and Atsa Atsa Media, um, we were roommates in Manhattan. We had, we had met each other at Relevant Sports Group and became like instantaneous friends. Um, she ended up going on to Fubo TV, um, but we lived together in New York uh, in the Upper West Side. And um, it was kind of there that we thought about to football. Now, Hannah's not doesn't have you know a soccer background or football background, um, but has worked for Sky Sports um, in um, media rights, and she's also worked in ventures and startups and tech. Um, and so we kind of put our heads together and we thought about how could we create this business. Um, we had meetings with the likes of NBC just initially to see if they'd be open to kind of a share if we invest in the rights and, and if they would support us in our vision to, to bring women's football to premium broadcast for the first time outside of their domestic territories. 
Um, and it was phenomenal. We had, I remember the meeting, it was in January of 2020, uh, which wasn't that long ago, um, in the city with John Miller and Wendy Bass of NBC. And, uh, you know, the, the we, we had no idea what to expect and they were super positive and right away they were like, yes, we'll support this, this and this. Um, and then because of Hannah and, and she has these pheno- this phenomenal network, we were able to get linked in with, with the folks at Pitch who represents the FAWSL and their media rights pitched them the idea of what we were trying to do. Um, and we we then luckily got introduced to 777 Partners shortly thereafter. It was a very quick turnaround. This was something that happened. It was like boom, 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 and all of a sudden we launched this company, uh, September 1. But um, they were really excited about kind of what our vision and what we could build. Um, I think women's football has a lot of potential, but actually bringing it all together is something I think people don't really know how to wrap their heads around. Um, and so, you know, I, our idea for the business and the business model, obviously we're investing in the rights. We share this content, but we retain the sponsorship integrations and the production around the matches. So if you've ever watched our matches on NBC, you'll see Atta Football, the opening sequences, and we have the ability to integrate sponsors into all of our live broadcasts across all our premium broadcast partners. And that's in the US. And then we have territories in Europe, like the UK, Ireland, Germany, and Italy as well. And we have premium broadcast partners there as well. Um, so that that's one way. And then we are we do have this digital hub and community um, and we will be keeping a free layer come September, but we will be launching a subscription platform with a lot of phenomenal features. Uh, I think incredible value um, for fans, but then also uh, going back to your comment before, players of the game, I think, um, you know, you have to try to shift a culture here in the U.S. And, and globally, right? And I think specifically in the U.S., you have such a great market. You have all these youth players, boys and girls, but the girls, it's, it's obviously quite quite popular. You have over one and a half million girls that play the game. So how do you start to get them to watch the game as a part of their player development, to cultivate role models on the women's side, uh, to watch the game, to have some fun with it, to engage, to make it kind of a community feel. And those are all things that we're going to be bringing to the platform. So we're so excited. Um, you know, we hope to partner with more leagues um, and to bring fans, you know, more and more access. Uh, but yeah, this, it was a really quick turnaround. I, I can't believe, like, when I think back, it was like year, maybe a year and a half ago where we kind of iterated the, the idea and everything happened super quick. It's it's impressive, you know, and, <laughs> and like for me, it was just cool this year to see like the PSG Lyon games for, you know, just one example, um, you know, which were kind of historic games considering PSG ended up winning the league in uh, Lyon's, I think it was 14 year run came to an end. Um, and, you know, like also having the the FAWSL games and all the American players from the national team who went over there. You know, I put a calendar together every week of games on my radar. And, you know, it was cool to be able to put those games every week for my followers on there. And every weekend, when those games were on, I was watching those games, you know, like, you know, often those are like the, a better choice for me to watch than as someone who covers this sport, than some of the other things that were on offer on the men's side. So I thought that was cool. Um, I, from a tech perspective, Susie, like what, what have you been working on, uh, in terms of your, your gig there? And can, can you reveal some of the stuff that might be on the way? 
It's like, what hasn't she been working on? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's we been a very busy year. Yeah, we're kind of just coming up for coming up for air a little bit. Um, yeah, I started in January, and um, and then I actually got COVID for two weeks, so that was oh, kind no. of a rough start. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, we hit the ground running. You know, Ez and Hannah have this brilliant, really, really spectacular vision for what they're building. Um, so, you know, we've just been working really hard to put that vision on paper um, and map it out and set up a roadmap for um, our development team. And we're, uh, yeah, everything's on track. We had a good meeting this morning. Um, and we have, I mean, it really is going to be very cool. And it's also cool that, um, you know, a lot of the games are still going to be free. Um, everything is free right now on the site at football.com. You just have to put in your, you know, email um, and, and register. Um, and we are obviously going to, you know, start this subscription side of the site um, with a ton of very cool premium features, a couple different levels of subscription. Um, and, you know, we actually did, we had our first live uh, show um, actually, it's going to air tomorrow. Uh, at, well, it's going to air. It will air. It will have aired. Um, and, uh, you know, it's we have um, Vicky Lasada on, um, you know, who's the captain of Barca, just won the Champions League. So, you know, we're just having like creating really cool content, um, a lot of interactive stuff for coaches. Um, you know, we're going to have a locker room feature for teams. Um, where uh, coaches are in control of tactical sessions and they can host their own sessions. Um, it's going to be very cool. We're really excited about it. Nice. Um, one question I've got for you as I sit here watching the men's Euros, I know that the women's Euros are coming next year. And I don't th- think that's been announced on like if that's, we, I don't, it's been very hard to watch those over the years in the United States. Do you have any info on that? I actually really legitimately have no info on that. <laughs> I don't. Uh, you know, I don't know if Atifabo will be involved, um, but we'll obviously support it with making sure our community knows where and how to watch it um, if we aren't directly involved. Um, you know, but what we have done is, with, you know, with, with federations and other leagues, we've taken one-off matches and taken them in territories where they haven't been able to sell them. Um, to really support at least so that we can start to build this like one-stop shop and this this hub so fans actually know and how and where to watch this I think it was challenging this year with Champions League um, because it was so fragmented and that will change next year um, you know that will be very different thankfully right um, but I think that's sometimes a challenge right as a fan like where who's who's announcing where it is is it centrally located does anybody know where to watch it um and so if we can help in any way, we certainly will. But I don't have any, I don't know where those matches look. <laughs> Didn't need to put you on the spot there. I, I get so excited about like, you guys got the Spanish league recently. Yeah, no, we do it all the games. time. We're like, Ed, can we show this game? Can we show this game? Yeah, and then I just scramble to see what I can do. I, everyone puts pressure on me. They're like, Ed, are you going to get this? Are you can get this? Yeah. I'm like, I'll try. And then, you know. Yeah, we got we were able to get some of the Spanish league matches. Again, that that league is is very fragmented and is not sold as a collective. Um, and so that's that's often the challenge with some of these leagues as well. And it used to happen a lot on the men's side. Um, and still, you know, there are some leagues that do it, but uh, sometimes it's sold club by club. Sometimes it's just home matches. Sometimes part of the league is sold as a collective, sometimes the other. So we were able to thankfully bring on some uh, or take on and distribute some around Madrid and Barca matches um, this season, which was really great. Especially, I mean, I am 
just giving Barca a plug here, incredible. I've never, you know, on the women's side, the level of sophistication, um, you know, you see it there and it's like a, the same style as the men's team plays as their like academies, youth academies on the girls and the boys side. Um, it's really, really was amazing for me to watch them this year and to have those access to those live, those last matches live on Atta and on demand was exciting for us for sure. Yeah, Caroline Graham Hansen came on a recent podcast here. If, if any of you listeners have not uh, heard that one, go back because she was great. Just she's a phenomenal player on on a terrific team. Uh, just was a joy to watch Barcelona this year. And, and I'm curious to see if they become potentially the next Lyon. You know, they're going to have to keep doing this for a while. But uh, the possibility is is there. Um I, I guess for, for either one of you, I, I, I would be curious to know, like we've seen sponsors uh, come on board for the NWSL recently. It seems like this is happening in Europe as well. Uh, pe- you know, sponsors that want to be associated with women's soccer in particular. Are you noticing that in, in what you do uh as well, or, or, or like, how could that potentially have an impact on, on what you're wanting to do with Aja football? Yeah, I think it's a, you know, we are in regular conversations with some really premium brands and looking at how we can integrate them into our digital platform. Um, I think the one area that we really would love to kind of find a, a sponsor and a partner is to really present the premium broadcast piece. Um, that's an area we haven't been able to kind of lock in um, and it's something that's really you know vital to us as a business because we've taken this risk we're the ones investing right um, and as part of our partnerships we've retained you know that ability to integrate sponsors um, and so I, I think and I whenever I talk to brands I think it's such a phenomenal story it's like you can present for the first time some of the best leagues the most notable brands some of the best players in the world um, on premium broadcasts outside the domestic territories for the first time. Um, and it's a very much a global play because, you know, you get the visibility on OnsonFootball.com, but then you get it on the premium broadcasters in multiple territories. So um, definitely if there are any brands or sponsors out there listening and uh, are interested in investing, like it's a, it's a really, I think it's a phenomenal opportunity and a marketing opportunity, you know, for them as well. Susie, you and I had actually had an interesting conversation a few months ago where I think I had tweeted something to the effect of asking my Twitter followers, you know, with so many soccer games, men's and women's now available on digital platforms here in the US, I was curious to know what they thought were some of the best interfaces out there for soccer fans. Because I know like there's some, you know, soccer fans are passionate here in the US as they are everywhere. And so there's like, people get deep-seated feelings about, you know, <laughs> television broadcasts and, and consuming and, and all of that. I, I, what have you learned, I guess, since you've been doing this for a little while now, about what it is that fans who want to be consumers of soccer on digital platforms want in their interface uh, as they're watching games? Yeah, well, that was lucky timing for me because I just started working for ETA and you asked your fans that and there was an amazing response, right? You got a ton of, of, yeah, and you got a ton of replies. So, you know, I I was basically tracking. I made like a spreadsheet of everything that everybody was asking for and I tallied up, you know, the top um, requests. 
And, um, and of course, I thanked you a million times for it. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think people, first of all, they're just looking for like a like you were saying, like you, you post where to watch. Right. We need one place for women's football where you can go and know exactly where to watch every single game that's on. You know, I, ha- I we have people texting us like, where can I watch this game? Where can I watch this game? And sometimes it's hard for us to find. Um, you know, you just can't find them yet. So that's one of our goals is to provide um, a schedule page where we have not only the games that are on our platform, but, you know, all the women's soccer games that we can possibly provide with links of where to watch. So we're working on that now. I think that's the number one priority. Um, and then, you know, also the premium broadcasting, exciting, you know, knowledgeable commentating, um, you know, like background stories about the players. It's, it's, it's just building the community. You know, we women's soccer deserves and needs um and needs a community um so that's you know i think that's the the biggest uh you know and obviously um you know it has to be it has to be easy to log in i mean there's you know it's um, from the technical side there's some basic things that that the platforms need too you know um and you know what i did find out from from that survey that you did was that there there isn't a platform yet men's or women's that is doing everything perfectly which you know leaves a big giant opportunity for us um, so, so that was, it was, so I thank you again for, for posting that. It was very helpful. I didn't think it was going to be that useful. I was just curious. I sometimes I actually do something useful on Twitter. So, <laughs> um. it was so useful. Grant. I mean, like she, yeah. as Susie circulated to us internally, we're like, oh my God, this is phenomenal as we're like trying to make updates and like, you know, build our tech platform. Like it was really great to hear because the consumers, the audience and the fans are, you know, they're the ones that you know, you need to cater to and make sure that their experience is premium. It's easy. The login's easy. They can find things easily. Like, I think it's all about making that experience super seamless and simple, uh, which is sometimes hard to do, funny enough, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's It's harder than it sounds. Yeah. Um, S, where do you want Atta Football to be in, I don't know, three years, five years? Yeah, it's. Uh, oh, I get that question a lot. I think for us, you know, we we're trying to build this community that delivers value um, that's far greater than just the live matches. Uh, we hope that we can unite people, that we can provide them with unique experiences to get closer to the best in the world, travel, training opportunities, um, premium content, access to the best in the world. Um, hopefully we can do that with some part, some really great partners as well. Um, so I think for us, it's being this kind of really great, powerful global community for the women's game and almost a rite of passage for any girl, young girl, young player, doesn't matter, boy or girl, um, that plays the game, wants to be part of our community because it's cool. We've got some great swag. They like being a part of it. Uh, they get loads of value and they're excited to be a part of it. It's super easy to use. It's fun. It's interactive. Um, so for us, it's really about building this global community for the women's game. Esmeralda Negron is a former Princeton star soccer player who's now a co-founder and general manager of Atta Football. Susie Petricelli is the author of the memoir Raised a Warrior, a memoir of soccer grit and leveling the playing field. She's also a digital project manager at Atta Football. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you guys and good luck with everything. Thank you so much, Grant. Thanks for sharing this with your community. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Esmeralda Negron and Susie Petricelli, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. 
If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. We'll be right back. 